Hey friend, this podcast is brought to you by The Family Thrive, an expert-led, science-backed online community for parents who want to dig deeper and do better. Join us at thefamilythrive.com. But it was something that I, an idea I came across very early in my grief, specifically in communities who lacked access to proper grief counseling services, weren't able to take off after that I had the privilege of time after Sato passed to care for myself. That is a privilege and a gift. Most people do not have that, and particularly in certain underserved communities. And that unexpressed grief becomes a medical crisis. It shows up as diabetes. It shows up as anxiety. It shows up as depression. And so that unexpressed grief has many faces and it is a public health crisis. You know today's guests from dozens of roles in television and movies, starting as one of Will Smith's crushes in the iconic Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, to her most recent role as Elise Torres in Netflix's, in my opinion, hilarious and endearing comedy, Never Have I Ever. Along the way, she lived her best life working as an actress in Hollywood, falling in love with and marrying Sorrow, a Sicilian chef, coping with his later cancer diagnosis, adopting a daughter, and then eventually caring for Sorrow and their daughter as he passed away in 2012. Her journey then turned toward understanding and living through grief, the lessons of which she turned into a 2019 memoir called From Scratch, a memoir of love, Sicily, and finding home. The book has been adapted into a series by Netflix produced by Reese Witherspoon coming out next year. We met Timby way back when she started doing work around grief and caregiving after her husband passed away. Our work with Childhood Cancer Families and Max of Project provided a lot for us to connect over. And now, all these years later, we get to connect over growing through grief, finding resilience in the face of tragedy, and planting roots and choosing love no matter what life throws our way. Timby is an absolute light and joy, and I know you're going to love this conversation as much as we did. Settle in for the truly amazing, so funny, and really insightful Timby Locke. Okay, so Justin makes the questions and I mess it all up with yeah. conversation. So, <laughs> yes, no, it's it, it is it is a great dynamic. I try to keep the train on the tracks. I try and to, Audra wants I try to, to go derail us constantly and visit all the small towns off the road, which I, is a great yeah, it's like a great mix. But I want to talk about from scratch. I really want to. I know it's not what we're starting with here in our questions, but I feel so honored that you let us in on social media. You let all of us in on your journey. Um, it feels so big to me. It feels so beautiful on so many levels because you have been so kind from the beginning of Max's diagnosis, really, to welcome me into discussions of grief, to welcome me into your story, to... Uh, you have helped me dig deeper into my journey and not just understand a search for a cure or or not, you know, in a more dynamic view. Your book is gorgeous. It takes us through uh, such a powerful life journey, plus the, I mean, you immerse us, right? And now you're bringing this to life in a show. Can you, can you, tell, can you tell us about this process for you? First of all, everything you said, for whatever reason, in the way you lined it up, I found myself getting super emotional just listening to it because because I've been so in it and in the the writing and then the sharing and then the adapting and then the filming and I don't sometimes slow down to sort of mm. I don't, I'm not able to have that thirty thousand foot view of the experience. Mm. I'm just sort of in it, and so every now and then when I like take a breath and listen mm. and like you just that was a gift thank you for that share because mm. it just made me sort of drop in um and realize i have been doing that <laughs> like i have been intentionally i mean it sounds absurd because i wrote a book <laughs> to say like, well, i have been intentionally sharing but i i have and and you know it's it's been a ride unlike any other it has expand you talk about expanding mm. i have expanded far beyond my known capacity. <laughs> like mm. I, I thought like I have capacity. 
okay, I'm, I'm a person who, you know, if you take 10 people, probably out of the 10, on average, I'm, I'm in the two of us have got like a lot of capacity. Like I, I kind of yeah. get that. But experience <laughs> has taught me like, well, wait a minute, hold on. I've got capacity. And so, Ooh. you know, it's it's been it's been a beautiful experience. It's been a loving experience. It's been a hard experience. And in many ways, at times, it's mirrored my grief, but it's also mm. mirrored. It's, it's also spawned growth. Like I like the two things are like always oh. side by side. I they they're just always sitting right next to each other. What's coming up for me is like hearing hearing about the process for you yeah. of of really bringing your book to screen and at the same time I'm starting to think your sister was is involved in this and did she experience your grief differently I'm going to cry like thinking about this like do, it, your daughter experiences differently like it seems really big to me to bring not only the book to the world but then to bring this into the form that you're bringing it into now. So yeah, keep exploring. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say, I mean, listen, the writing and I could talk, I love talking about writing and, you know, I, I wish I could say I was, you know, I've written one book, but I've been writing my whole life. So in a way off, not knowing, not with any professional intention or goal, it was just for my own personal edification growth, sort of sorting through like all the mental chatter. I mean, I was doing that even as early as 14, you know, when I was like 14 and hating on my parents, I would like, you know, <laughs> go up there and I'd be like, they said this and they said this. Like sort of, you know, blah, 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 blah. So to some degree, all of that, me trying to process my world, right? And my lived experience, I've been doing that since I was really young. And, but it was only in my forties and after a large life experience, being a parent and married and a caregiver and then widowed that I was like, wait a minute, I actually want to sort of um, not only document, but sort of craft this, this life that I've had, like for myself, you know, writing is often making sense of a lived experience, especially memoir, right? Memoir is, is literally about making sense and giving a kind of narrative to big life experiences. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was doing, you know, and I, and I felt it, it was worthy of sharing because I knew that elements of my story were so universal. Like yes. I am clearly not the only, oh, yeah. like, yes. but I knew the things that made it kind of magical for me were that many people don't have all those things at one time. Like, you know what I mean? Like they were, they, I, I had this experience of a decade of like full tilt living, like full tilt, everything. It was like, it was like motherhood and cancer and adoption and like, and acting and two languages and food and color. And I was like, whoa. And I was like, oh, that's my soup. Right. And my fear when I started to write it was that no one would get it. I was like, it's too many things. Like, it's too many things. Like, it's not like, it's not like, oh, she met a chef and she married him and that was great. Like, that's a story people can wrap their noggin around, right? But, oh, wait, no, there's cancer. Okay, so we're in, you know, oh, oh, they're by two cultures. Okay, yeah, this is complicating it even more. And then it just kind of went on and on. You know, that's the energy that I brought to bear when I sat down to say, let me try to see if I can craft a narrative, a book, not just a single essay, but like a book from this. And I said, let me, having never done this before, let me just write the best book I can write for right now. I'm a first time writer. Let me just write the best book I can write right now. And then I set my life up in such a way to kind of give myself the best shot at that. I kind of had to pair some things back to make space because I knew I was taking on a big endeavor. And it was a very personal endeavor. And often when I was writing the book, I would have, I call it fights with my book. I'd be like, why did I ever think I could do this? Like, I don't understand where this is going. I'm like, in one minute, I'm talking about like being in a bar in Florence and like listening to David Bowie. And then like the next minute I'm making lentil soup. And then I'm like suddenly like in East Texas with my grandma's like, what is this thing I'm trying to write? And it vexed me, right? So you spend like mm -hmm. this year trying to wrap your heart and mind and, you know, the things you know about craft around all these words and events and memories and make it string together. And so 
I got to a place where my editor thought, okay, you've done that. I succeeded. Goes out into the world. I'm shaking in my boots as it goes out into the world because now it's not just me. I wrote the book. The room I'm in right now is where I pretty much wrote the book. Here, um, in my bedroom, in my car, when my daughter was like, you know, at volleyball practice <laughs> or, you know, whatever. <laughs> I wrote the book on airplanes. I kind of like, I, whenever the book wanted to come out, I was just trying, I said, I made myself ready and available to receive it, you know, and, and to shape it. And it was very personal. It was very intimate. And I didn't talk about it with anybody. You know, I maybe told five people I was writing a book. I, you don't go around being like, hey, I'm writing a book. You know, no, you just kind of get into it. One, because I thought if I fall flat on my face, I don't need the whole world <laughs> to know about it and have to be accountable to this. It's a personal endeavor. And then it did the thing that it did in the world, which it got picked up by Reese Witherspoon, the book, Reese's Book Club. And suddenly this very personal, intimate, private experience is now very, very public. And people often think, that, well, that should be fine for you because you have a career as an actor and you're used to being in front of people. But those are someone else's words. That's someone else's story. I'm just sort of the, mm. you know, the creative vessel and character who is, you know, bringing it to life. But suddenly I was being asked to sort of speak now about my book, kind of, you know, the way I am now. And from there, Netflix came along. <laughs> And, you know, Netflix came along and now it's being made into a series and I'm adapting it with my sister. And so your question, my long way around is that what was a personal individual experience became very much a family experience again in a different way because my sister and I adapted the book and, you know, she was right beside me through 80, 90% of the lived experiences that I talk about in the book. And so for us to put our heads together as creative people, but also as the people who, you know, lived the events and adapt it brought up a lot again, you know, and I think we both have had to like take care of ourselves through this process because in order to share about something and in order to write it or to recraft it, you have to travel back into it. Yeah. And so it's been lovely to travel back into it with my sister because I'm doing it with a partner who I implicitly trust. We have the same sort of creative sort of sensibilities and language and approach, but we also have had to be very intentional about how we care for each other through the process. I can just imagine. And just feeling into this, I'm, I'm wondering what that self-care has looked like for you, if that surprised you, that that facet of it. And I'm wondering if anything else surprised you, if it surprised you that the story really coming into the world, which is something that it sounds like it was not fully expected. If your feelings that came up from that also surprised you. Yeah, I have had, um, it's been a, a, a mosaic of feelings. It has been everything from pure. I mean, every day I woke I mean, I literally wake up like, in this immense state of wonder, gratitude, and a quasi like disbelief <laughs> that like, I'm like, wait, how did I get here? Um, and then I go, oh, but I'm here. Oh, but I'm here. And oh, what wonder, what wonder is this? And from that place, I go forth and say, well, when I wrote the book, I said, let me write the best book I'm capable of writing with adapting it for series for, 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 for Netflix, the, it's been a similar process. It's like, let us make the best series we're capable of making mm, right now yeah. for what we think the world needs right now. Mm. The fact that we began the writer's room in 2019, the fall of 2019, and I think you can wow. see where I'm going with this, yes. right? <laughs> we're in the writer's room, and we were about to break episode, there's eight episodes, um, initially there were going to be ten, um, but we were about to break, I think, the second to the final episode, and we got that call that said, you know, everybody go home, <laughs> go home, we're done, you know, and... We kept writing for a while as a team until we sort of had all the episodes laid out, and then everything went quiet as it all as the world went quiet. And then Netflix returned to us and said, "Let's we're ready to make this show." So we've made the show, we've written the show, 
in the pandemic. And now we've produced and filmed it in the pandemic. So the self-care is happening on a couple of levels. There's the personal care of like, okay, we're the people who lived with this. We're being to some degree, not to some degree, to off to a large degree, entering back into those spaces. And when you see, when you, when you write it on the page, it's one thing, but when you see it like on set and you're like, wait, oh, I, in the 3D, this is, this is it. This is like what I lived like again, but now there are other people playing the parts and, you know, and so my sister and I would often turn to each other and just go, holy cow, what is happening? And it has been truly beautiful and um, humbling. And every day we say, well, we've been given the privilege of this moment Mm. of this opportunity what can we do with it and how can we help to serve the world Mm. and and i know that feels like a big and lofty expanse but i don't think you can write a show about love grief death dying and family and then produce it in the pandemic (laughs) without asking yourself how can this serve the world right now (laughs) because this is you know, this isn't like a, hey, let's tell the story of 10B just because it's fun. No, it's like, let's share this story because, and we really crafted the series with, with that intentionality. I mean, when you pull, we had seven writers in the writer's room together, and we're all bringing our lived experiences to it. And when you adapt a story, when you adapt a book, fiction or nonfiction, it has to live in a different medium. So it's, things are going to change. It's going to be fictionalized in places. But certainly when you bring a team of other humans in, each person is adding their story into the story. So we had people on the writer's room who had lived, who had been caregivers, who had been walked people up to their final days. We had people who had a great culinary experiences in their background, people who'd studied in Italy, people who, you know, knew about adoption and immigrants. And so like everybody's plugging Mm. into it becomes this collective human story that has the essence and sort of given circumstances of my story. Like it kind of, Mm -hmm. it stays true to the given circumstance, but then it's really everybody's story. It's everybody's story. So powerfully shared. And you answered the the next question that, that I had with that is like, what, you know, kind of, I I had this sense of what we could all hope to potentially experience or or see from the story. And I was wondering what your perspective on that of like how this would land for folks, you know, like what the hopes would be with that. But with the shared collective story that that there are so many facets we can all identify with. That's the thing that is is my prayer and wish for the series as we continue to sort of we're in the editing phase now. And and as it, you know, when it lands on Netflix, and I don't know what the date will be, but it'll be, you know, next year sometime, that viewers will be, some part of it will speak to them and ask them that they walk away from this series asking themselves, what more love could I seed in the world? I think we want to put a pin in that. And put, it, put, it, put a pin in that quote. That is... Absolutely incredible. And it's, um, that hits me really hard. That is something that like coming from the childhood cancer journey, all of all of the work that we do, what we've shared, you know, this is our this is, I think we share in these hopes of what we what we share with the world. Absolutely. Um, It's a powerful mission. What I love about this entire discussion here is everything you've hit on goes back to something you said at the beginning was that when you started to write this book, you were you, you were feeling into the universality of so many of your experiences. And I mean, really, you described how there was so much going into this book because so much has happened in your life. But at each Full point, it's so universal. I mean, yeah. the the you know from from your child. So I I really identified with this childhood of a kind of uprootedness in your childhood. And then the writing and and your story really feels like a project of growing roots, of becoming rooted. And so I'm wondering if you can say more about this because this really came through so clear in your childhood. Oh my gosh, Josh, and thank you so much for that. Because, you know, initially when I was sort of thinking about the book, And I knew Sicily would be this character in the book. I knew that this place, you know, that I returned to each summer, those summers, especially the first, the book takes place the first three summers after Sato passed when I go, but I continue to go. But I kept asking myself, 
what is that return about? Like, why is this place so important? Yes, my mother-in-law is there. Yes, I bring my daughter to be with her grandmother. Yes, it's, it's it reminds me of my husband. Yes, the food is good. And yes, the Mediterranean is there. Okay, all of those yeses. Great. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about it for Tenby? Like deep, deep, deep down inside. And the first thought I had was that Grief is very dislocating. It's dislocating in time and space. I, it, it, for me, that, that was my, and I, I don't think it's an uncommon experience of grief. You know, my own home didn't feel like my own home anymore. My, everything felt both the same and completely different. And it was very disorienting and dislocating. And so having a place to go to where I could just be and anchor myself literally grounded me. And so I said, okay, I get that from the grief perspective, why Sicily is a grounding place to sort of anchor myself. But then I thought, what? And it was really the point in the book when my mother-in-law gifted me land there. Mm. And I really spent a lot of time in the writing of the book trying to unpack why that touched me the way it did. Like at first I was just like, it's a great gift, but no, it really like hit me in a primal way. Mm -hmm. And I realized that there was this young part of me from early childhood, that child of divorce, lots of moving around, different family makeups that had been looking for a kind and quality of home that was consistent, that was ever present that was unconditional and unwavering. And I didn't have an unhappy childhood. I had a childhood not unlike many people, certainly American children, right? You know, other parts of the world, people might, you know, live in the same place with the same nuclear family. I had a, you know, I had my own experience. And something about when I, when I was writing the book and I connected those two, when I realized that the receiving this gift of the land that that was so meaningful because I was someone who had longed for a kind of home, I realized, I started asking myself other questions about what does it mean to have home? And Mm -hmm. I realized I had been looking for home in my relationships. I had been looking for home in so many places my whole life. And I realized, let me lean into that and sort of, you know, weave that through the book. At first, I thought nobody's going to get that (laughs) because it feels too esoteric. (laughs) But I thought I'm going to try to make that that connective tissue because I feel like there's a part of us that always wants to be seen, heard, and witnessed for our experience. Mm -hmm. And for me, as a newly grieving, you know, uh, mother and and widow. I wanted to be seen and witnessed for that experience, for having been had been a caregiver. And now that whole part of my identity was gone. I didn't know what to do with myself because I didn't have th- that to charge me each day. And so being in Sicily, being at my mother-in-law's table, talking to her, which I write about a lot in the book, she was seeing me for all of those life experiences. Mm. And in our conversations, she sensed this person needs an anchor. She just needs an anchor in the world. And I think that that gesture, because I can't say it's like not some big palatial, like, you know, plot of land. And it's, it's certainly not like, you know, under the sun with like a gorgeous villa, and, you know, rolling hills and, you know, cypress trees and groves and groves and groves of olives and great. It's none of that, right? It's a, it's a sloping plot of land, but it was the symbol of it and also the gift of it that rooted me. And I think we all need to be rooted. Oh, that's beautiful. so beautiful. I keep coming back to the childhood portion of your book because I really resonated with this. And then when you said when you were 14 and writing in your journal, like, oh man, the, you know, like that. So, you know, there's so much universal there. And then... Um, and then as you grow up, as, as you come into the world, uh, you start to, and, and then you just described choosing your family. Like there's a biological family and then there is the family that you choose. I want to know more about this process for you of your family of choice, you know, how, and how you've brought this into your life up to the present day. You know, it's, 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 um, if you'd asked me 10, 15, 20, you know, years ago, like, 
I didn't even have language for it. I just, whoever I could be my most authentic self with, I was like, I claim you. I'm not letting you go. <laughs> you are my peeps. Yeah. You are my peeps. For, for here to eternity, you are my peeps. Like if I feel that I can trust you, be witness, be seen, and be authentic with you in my, all my goofiness, in my expansion, in my dreams, in my sorrows, then I think we're a tribe. Let's call each other a tribe, you know? And so I have this sort of family of friends. And of course, you know, with, with Sato, one of the things about marrying someone of a different culture and, and, and we, you know, not of a shared mother tongue is that we do have to really choose each other with a great deal of intentionality because you can't rely on like, oh my God, we like grew up listening to the same music or like, oh, I mean, we literally had like, yeah, we had like none of the same shared yeah. stuff. Like I was like, what? Like who, like you play music after the what is that? Like, that sounds insane. <laughs> like, I love it. Like, I hate it. You know, but you find these ways, like, I, I, you know, so I guess I, I began to sort of have a practice of a felt sense that, oh, I can be myself with you. And I feel like that's the best sort of, to me, litmus test for who you choose to keep in your life who you invite in and who you choose to pull into your inner circle. And by the way, yeah, those people yeah. don't have to look like you come from the same culture you do. They don't even have to speak mm -hmm. the same language you do. I mean, it's like, that's the one thing about my life that I learned. You could, I didn't know that many years ago, but I can, I can unequivocally say that now. <laughs> that when did you discover you, that? You know, I think I've discovered it along the way. I will say one of the things um, when it really became crystal clear and conscious for me was again in Sicily. There's someone in Sicily who will not say their name. They live in the town and we see each other once a year. My Sicilian is like, eh, like very bad. My Italian's decent. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it used to be better, but as years go by without someone to practice to, it's like, I have to like, you know, I click into it when I get there. But we, so we don't have like, a lot of, and she speaks no English. And yet, when we get together, we have the best time. And and what I mean by that is we each can go to like, we can just drop into our most authentic and deep selves. I realized like, how do I carry on a relationship? And I call it a relationship. We like WhatsApp a couple of times during the year, the intervening, you know, year. Christmas and Easter. <laughs> and then I see her in the summer. It's, it's one of the relationships I really value in my life. And I look forward to our connections. So I thought to myself, oh, this is that example of choosing family. Mm. And, you know, I, and maybe also just into your question about the childhood, I always went to, because I changed schools so often, I was thrown in with lots of different types of people and lots of different classes, you know, uh, middle class, yep. you know, yep. <laughs> rich, all of it, you know, people who are the working poor, like, you know, then different races, everything in my own family, there's sort of that hybrid of, of folks. And so I feel like I never was someone who could spend my life relying on, oh, we all have to come from a sort of a similar set of circumstances in order to be each other. And I also understood that sometimes I was closer with people who were not like me than I were with people who were my own biological genetic family. So right there, that also told me, doesn't kind of matter. It doesn't matter. Did it teach you or show you to um, trust something in yourself around energetic connection. It sounds like with this woman in Sicily, there's a, there's a deep energetic, right? It's beyond words. Did it, did your childhood teach you how to tap into that? I think it did. I think it did. Um, you know, you're, it, it's funny the way, you know, as I sit with it now and think about it, I do think there was that part of my young, very young self who was seeking a place to be all of who I was. And so I was yeah. a kid, like very early on, I was like the only girl who would play with all the boys on the block. Like, and all the other girls were like, why are you doing that? You're not supposed to play with the boys. And I was like, they're more fun. Like, that's who I'm gonna go with. <laughs> I can identify. <laughs> you know, they wanna yeah. play pirates and I wanna be a pirate. As long as I can be the captain of the ship, I will be the pirate. You know, I was like, 
<laughs> yeah, I was very much that kind of little kid. And so I, I do feel as though being all of who you are feels so good that I kept seeking out that feeling. And I think I've just been seeking that feeling over and over again, because some part of me understood that I could be more of who I was. I had more fun. I was more capacious in the world when I could just be me. And so it didn't mean that, you know, um, and, and sometimes that just wasn't the, the people who were maybe, you know, my first cousins or in my family. It was like other people. And so I was like, oh, th- those people can be family as well. So staying on this line or uh, this idea around your authentic self, was there a uh, was was there a shift or a transition when you became a mother? Was that that yeah you felt something happened with with the core? Totally, because then I mean one of the things about motherhood <laughs> that happens is suddenly you're taking your your heart is like going along and you're like. I am a loving, full person in this world. And uh, that feels great. And then suddenly you have a child and you are like, holy moly. (laughs) I have so much love. It's like bursting from me and I don't know what to do. And it's like, I'm scared. Like what happens if I break the person? Like you suddenly the stakes change. For me, I became a mother through adoption. That kind, the kind of intentionality of saying, you who you little person that we get to spend our lives together what a joyous gift that is and now i have the privilege and honor of caring for your little heart and that for me was a lot about wanting to and i think this is very common for most parents is that we want to give our children the things and we didn't have, and I don't mean things as an objects, but I mean experiences and like we want to heal the parts of ourselves that were mm-hmm. a little bit broken and didn't quite fit and all those things, right? And so you sort of, you this child comes into your life and suddenly you want to endow them with all of these things that like you didn't get. <laughs> and then you realize, oh, wait, they're on their own path and they're going to teach me as much as I might and I hope to teach them. I always say what I hope to teach her, you know, what I, how I hope to guide her. Timby, was there a like aha moment where you're like, oh, this person is, (laughs) is not me. Like they've (laughs) got their own path. Well, you know, one of the things I will say for sure about, and, and, you know, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, but coming to parenthood through through adoption, I was always clear about the fact that this child is a human that I get to share my life with, but she is not a replica of me. (laughs) She did not literally come through this vessel, but she's, we are in a joint, beautiful dance together. And the best I can do is to honor the full individuality for who she is, knowing that there are whole parts of, of who she is that will, it sounds strange to say, remain invisible to me. And what I mean by that is to say, when you get older, like my child's a teen now, and clearly I know now there are many parts of her life that will always remain invisible to me. <laughs> and literally, it's set up that way for a reason. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. <laughs> but I also think there was some part of me, you know, and, and you know, my mom still calls me today. She's like, I don't know what's going on in your life. And I'm thinking to myself, mm-hmm. I say that to say that as a, as a, I was aware of that, even as an, when she was an infant, you know, as an infant, I, I didn't have the, you know, often I think when you can look at your child and you see your eyes or you see your genetic code or you see your genetic imprint, there's this way that you kind of come to it seeing yourself. You know, I came to it seeing someone whose life was to discover and bloom in front of me. And that's a different experience. Mm. Yeah, it's also a mirage. And so I think that is so powerful to hear (laughs) of this from you, because I feel like it's so much of our work as parents and that you entered in to this relationship, this beautiful, loving motherhood 
relationship with this understanding is so powerful because for for many of us, it's our work to do to kind of pull apart that veil and see that I, I've got to manage manage myself, like you said, every single bit of healing and all of the things that I want to do through my child is my work to do and not through my child, right? Like, like I've got, I've got to, I've got to face this and, and it can be hard to see. It can be really hard to, te- to tease through that. I think it's powerful to hear. And it sounds like to me, one thing that, that really strikes me is that you are, you're such a courageous person who strikes me as a cycle breaker, starting with your drive into your authenticity as a child and knowing you as I've known you as somebody who, has wanted to, it seems to me, break the cycles of not talking about grief, of not talking about bereavement, of keeping these things in ourselves and keeping it in silence. Um, so I'd love to, I'd love to hear more about that and how maybe it even translates into your motherhood. But it, that's that feels like a, a theme to me that you've had the courage to say, no, we're there are a number of things that we're going to talk about and that need to be talked about in this world. So I'd love to know more about this experience of grief and motherhood with your daughter and how you are bringing things to light. I can see that about myself now. I didn't, um, and in some ways, it's a lesson or an awareness that I've come to later in life. I I never would have called myself like a challenger or, you know, a rabble rouser or like, you know, get in there and mix it. But I, I think I've quietly my whole life been like poking at the bear <laughs> kind of going like mm, that doesn't make sense to me mm, that doesn't feel right to me and often through my art and through my creativity because I think it, it was a space that I felt permission to play in to sort of push boundaries in after Sato passed the first thing I did before I wrote the book was create the kitchen widow and that was a, a, you know a web, it's a website that you know was really dedicated to caregiving and f- specifically families going through caregiving and grief and that really was an outgrowth of me trying to find a way to bring my whole self as a newly widowed and a grieving mom to an act of service and have all of those things be an act of service. And I've always come to things from the service model. And that is really comes from my grandparents, my grandparents, top down, both sides, people of service in their community, right? Didn't talk about it. Didn't walk around with a banner, you know, to just quietly just getting shit done. Excuse my French, (laughs) you know, just out there serving a very powerful model to witness growing up. I think in some ways I saw the way you could affect change in the world, make a meaningful difference, gift people a kind of love simply by shifting things. And so I, one story I have is my grandmother. My mother's mom, East Texas, was the kind of woman who often said to me, if you see a need, fill it. And I will ne- I've never forgotten that. And I try to this day to still live by that. And so to, to a large degree, the ways that I, my bravery, as you put it, or my courageousness has simply come out of saying, well, what do I have the capacity to do right now? How might I serve the situation? And, you know, it's from that place that I I take risks, you know, and often in service of love or something else. And it's one of the things I'm learning now is to also do that in service to myself, Mm. my own care, my own family. A decade ago, Audra and I received news no parent ever expects to hear. Your four-year-old son has brain cancer. In that hospital room in Orange County, California, we had our fair share of tears and despair. But we also vowed that we would use this to help our family thrive no matter what. A decade later, after starting a nonprofit that has served thousands of childhood cancer families, we're on a mission to bring all of the amazing researchers, doctors, therapists, and other experts we've worked with to all families everywhere. That's why we created The Family Thrive, an online platform and community of top health and wellness experts and parents like us who are looking to thrive against the odds. It has fresh daily expert articles on topics that matter to parents like us, 
like how to cook a superfood meal in under 20 minutes, or the latest sleep science that can boost our kids' mental health, or simple things we can do to thrive as parents. We have top credentialed experts breaking it all down into bite-sized chunks of actionable wisdom. And you know, when they say it takes a village to raise a family, well, this is our village and it's filled with quick bite expert wellness information and conversations that are designed specifically for busy parents. And when you're ready to dive deeper, we also have group-based workshops written and led by PhD researchers, psychologists, and clinical dietitians. This village is all on your phone, at your fingertips, whenever you need it. Join for free today at thefamilythrive.com. When I first started writing at, when I was taking classes at UCLA, I actually tried to write an essay about how what acting had taught me about caregiving. And clearly I did not do well in writing because nobody got what I was trying to say. But what I was essentially getting to was this very idea is that that career, that showing up day after day, giving it your best all the time, my integrity around my work and my artistry and my and that craftsmanship, I would not sacrifice that. I wouldn't do it half-ass. I had to be all in, but with the knowledge that I could be all in, but it still might not be for me. It might not be my part and my time will come. And there's a kind of trust that you have to live with in that, that helped me as a caregiver because I was like, well, we got to show up. We got to try all the things we got to give it our friggin' best. We got to turn over stone. We're going to really be fully open, but we don't know. We just don't know. We don't know if this thing is going to work. We don't know how you're going to feel on this. We don't know if we make that plan to go on this trip that you'll be able to do it, but we're not going to not try. We're not going to not give our best. And that, those, that mindset I got from being an actor. And so you call it resilience and it was resilience. And the parallels to parenthood of like, you could pour yourself in this and your child's going to throw that food on the floor or they're going <laughs> to refuse to do this or, you know, and, and, and then yet you come back <laughs> day after day and you keep doing Show it. Up. Someone told me at, uh, I don't know if you know, Soaring Spirits is an organization that is, is, is serves the widowed people internationally, but also their families. And she said to me, the founder, whose name is Michelle, she's actually up for a CNN hero award. So yeah, Michelle, but she told me we were talking and she said, you know, with my daughter after her, she was newly remarried and, and she said her daughter was a teen and she was just like pushing back and pushing back and pushing back. And she said, the role is to put, they're going to slam the door. And what we have to do is just put our foot, <laughs> wedge our foot between the door and the door jam. You know, it's just, and you just keep wedging your foot in there over and over again. Like you're just not going to shut it all the way. And that's kind of it. Like, and to me, that's a metaphor for like love and showing up and saying, you know what, I'm, you're, I'm never going to let the door fully shut. Like I'll wedge my foot in there. I'll do it. You know, I, I'll be crippled and hurting, but I'll try, you know? I, love uh, I think it's so powerful because to me, it does speak to showing up and we're so outcomes based in our society that it's, it's a really powerful testament to really, really showing up without that outcome or end in mind, you know? Because we don't know. We don't I mean, know. Audra, what the, do we know? If you told me, literally, when they, what, what was it? For us, it was March, I think, 14th, 2020, whenever they said, like, okay, go home. Mm -hmm. I remember people, like, oh, yeah, this will be for two weeks. Convinced. Convinced. Me too. It was going to be two weeks. Con I mean, literally, you couldn't wait. They, you couldn't move them off of it. They just knew. Two weeks. So let me just say, we're all here to say, we don't know Jack. <laughs> and yes, no, thank you. We don't. But what we do know, the one thing we do know, or that I can say I know for sure, to quote Oprah, what I know for sure, is that how we show up and how we meet those moments in our lives make up the kind and quality of life we have, the kinds of relationships we have, and that's really the thing that we have say in, that we have agency over. I don't have agency over the, the, the weather, what my 
kids going to do a week from now? Where my career is going? I don't have what I have agency over is how I'm going to show up each day. And for me, that comes back to, I find I work best when I come to the table with my most humble, grateful, and loving self. And by the way, that is a practice I have come to. So when like, I'm grumpy, stuff isn't going the way I want it to go. I'm irritated. I'm exhausted. The prayer, the wish, the desire, label it whatever noun you want, (laughs) for me is let me bring my most humble, grateful, and loving self to this. Because sometimes like my personality is like keyed up and I'm irritated and I friggin' don't want to deal with something or this is a challenge or it's asking more of me than I'm capable of or I'm insecure about it or I just don't know. So then when I feel that, I just say, okay, what is my most grateful, loving and humble response to this moment? And from that, I don't know what it'll look like, but it'll be better (laughs) than if I didn't. Than what it was in reaction. Yeah. So you take a pause. You take a pause and you ask yourself that grounding question. And to me, that reminds me of one of my favorite, I feel like a lighthouse for me has been the work of Viktor Frankl, A Man's Search for Meaning. And that concept that our last enduring freedom is our freedom to choose how we respond to any point of stimulus. That's what I'm hearing Absolutely. from you and, and the power of it, the power of being, and, and why is it in this society? We are, we are taught that if you don't have an immediate comeback response that you're dead in the water. You know what? Because that is an emotionally immature mm. cultural response. <laughs> yes. To- yes you know, the human experience, (laughs) because the reality is, no, we can't. And it's funny, you know, a lot of, I talk a lot, you know, going back to the book, you know, my mother-in-law who has been one of my great teachers about just life. And one of the things, you know, she often said was, I'd be like, okay, well, I'd say something as simple as I'm going to go get bread and I'll get some cheese and I'll be back at this time. And she would literally respond to me, if God wants. Oh my God, this is so, like, this is such Sicilian pathos here. Like, what the hell is God wants? Like, no, I'm actually just going to go get the bread that she's eating. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. And she's like, if God wants. (laughs) So unpacking that, but I think at at the core of that, at the core of that message is, honey, we don't know. Well, you can walk out that door and you don't know. And it's, but but it's like baked into the cultural language. It's baked into how people perceive the world. Now, some people call that fatalism. Some people, I mean, there are many words. And by the way, it can skew into that. But at its core is a sense that we don't know what, what the next moment might bring. And so actually, if it's, if it, you know, there's a kind of divine or unspoken or unseen, you know, guiding force (laughs) that is at play here that we don't have complete human dominion over. So go get the bread and cheese and olives. Hope to see you back. Yep. <laughs> but it's, it's a good reminder. You know, it's, a, it's, it's, so, um, it's such a good reminder to like hold it lightly and be grateful. It's powerful. It's a powerful reminder. And I wonder if your grief, the grief you carry this, this, this season in your life has in many ways, uh, or, or in some ways, given you, I mean, you've walked, I, I can only imagine the significant, uh, not only pain and discomfort, but really having to, to, to rest with and sit in that space of, of the unknowns from moment to moment. And I think of you deeply with that. And it makes me think when you talk about giving birth to the show through COVID, how you came into COVID with a whole different understanding of the world and of this, this, this project of, of living from this perspective. Totally. And I bet, I mean, Audra, I'm sure you as well. I mean, any of us who've walked the path of lifelong life-threatening illness, who have lived at the front lines of caregiving, who have interfaced with medical systems and hospital systems, and have had tried to navigate mysterious uh, symptoms, unknown outcomes. Like we, if you've lived that, and that is your day to day, when COVID came along, I was like, oh, 
the rest of the world is just, it's like, it's like my, it's like the, my experience now exponent, it's global. And by the way, the scale of that is actually too much for the human heart to hold. I mean, it's, it's hard enough to hold it in an individual life. You know, I think it's why people are often, you know, um, hospital phobic. I, I, I had friends when Sada was ill who were like, I would love to come. I just can't come into a hospital. I just can't come visit because I can't walk into a hospital. My first response was, oh my God, get over yourself. Just come visit. But, but ultimately, you know, what, I, what I've come to understand from a more empathetic place now is that, oh, what that really is, is sure the deeper fears about life, death, the unknown, the what it triggers in people. So when we were all living through COVID, it was like that spread across the globe. Like that was the, the energetic of that was so intense. We were never meant to experience that at a global scale. And to be aware of the global scale, right? And to be aware of it. That, I mean, it, it was beyond. And so for those of us who I was both being re-triggered by my own personal experiences like over and over again, my own fears of like, oh my gosh, what happens if we're going to, but then watching it play, it was, uh, it was a, a great deal. So then to be still in the middle of all of that masked, you know, with all the, the, the COVID tests every day, and then try, try to take a troop of 200 people into production every day for, you know, 12, 14 hours a day and make a TV show was no small thing. No small thing. And the ways in which the subject matter of what we were filming and the story we're seeking to tell touched every individual crew member on that set. So it wasn't just the story that was playing out on screen with the actors, with the costumes and wardrobe and the given circumstance. But there were people who were our prop masters, who were our wardrobe designers, who were hairstylists, who were lighting people. They have, everybody's had a life. Everybody knows someone. Everybody has a mom, a brother, a sister, a child, an uncle, a friend who has walked a path. And so suddenly being on set would bring that up. And so I was as the, as the creator and as a producer and as the writer sort of aware of both the ways in which my own stuff was coming up, but also the ways in which we're having to wrap our hearts and minds around a whole troop of people now because we're all in this big human experience together. And some of the days it was like, let's just send love and light to everybody here on the set because we're trying to do something really brave right now in unprecedented circumstances. That will, that will only radiate from there. And I'm thinking putting that on the world stage where I feel like the, the fear, distrust of the government, the political aspects of it, the vitriol against the healthcare system and vaccines and change and all of that. What I'm seeing in that is grief, unacknowledged grief, pain, fear. Complete. I have been saying for years, and I think we, we, we talk about it now, and by the way, I, I don't claim it as my own original idea, but it was something that I, an idea I came across very early in my grief specifically in communities who lacked access to proper grief counseling services, weren't able to take off after that. I had the privilege of time after Sato passed to care for myself. That is a privilege and a gift. Most people do not have that, and particularly in certain underserved communities. And that unexpressed grief becomes a medical crisis. It shows up as diabetes. It shows up as anxiety. It shows up as depression. And so that un unexpressed grief has many faces, and it is a public health crisis. It is a public health crisis. When I see the enraged person doing whatever out in the world, supermarket, road, <laughs> you know, wherever. I'm like, mm, there's some stuff going on underneath all of that. Retrauma, trigger, right? Whatever, whatever that might be. Right. Unaddressed, unacknowledged, unseen, unheard. Unseen, unheard. And by the way, because there were days, you know, and I, you know, I, 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 I try to touch on this a little bit in the book early on in my grief. I felt like a, an insane person. I felt so untethered so like literally every particle of my of my physical form was like floating outside of me it felt so strange to be alive in the world when I was in so much pain and the person who was my person was no longer here 
if that made me feel so quote unquote crazy, if you will, or outside of myself, and I have the resource of time, I had therapy, I went to grief counseling, I had close family and friends, I had people leaving soup on my door every day, I had a career that could wait for me. I had the privilege of all of that, and I still felt as unmoored as I did. Imagine the human, imagine the person, which is the majority of our society, who does not have that level of care. So so the one thing the pandemic has taught us is it allowed us and given us space to have public conversations about this. You know, when we were talking about this five, six years ago, we were like (laughs) over in a corner, (laughs) you know, just talking about it, like trying to go, hey, world. In a little corner, right. (laughs) Pay attention to this thing because it's kind of like in the human experience and like we all need to be dealing with it. And when the pandemic hit, I think we've all were able to acknowledge that in a new and deeper way. And the question remains for us as a society and as a globe, will we keep the conversation going? Will we enact change that makes the path easier? You said something so wise to me many years ago, and I've never forgotten it. You said, we, with, this, with the work of Max Love, the idea is that we want to make the path easier for the people who come behind us. I mean, those are not your exact words, but the sentiment, that's what I heard. And that has always stayed with me, always stayed with me. And so my question to all of us as a society across the globe is, will we make it easier for the generations who are going to come behind us? Or will we sit deaf, mute, (laughs) blind, (laughs) you know, dumb to our present reality, continue the status quo and not really change things. And, and, and that can seem so big, it can seem so large, and it is, but it's also super micro. Like you do it on a daily basis in your own life and in your own community, and it has exponential things. If there was nothing, the pandemic taught us that too. Because I will tell you, you know, to get political for five seconds, what I saw was when I saw, you know, not far from my home, a block away, people taking to the streets in mass protest for things that did not feel right to them anymore. And so, whereas before people had been dormant and willing to sort of go along the get along, willing to not really plug in or turn up, turn the cheek or turn a deaf ear to the outcries of their fellow citizens, suddenly they couldn't. And so we know that, and that happened on with micro changes, with a big catalyst, big catalyst, the catalyst of not just the pandemic, but of violence enacted by the people who are tasked to protect us. But we saw what happens when we do really, really, really stand up at the individual level. And so I say, will we continue to do that around this conversation, basic healthcare and mental services for those of us when we are grieving? No one is going to get through this life without losing someone. You just won't. You will. At some point, I saw my own health decline and change, meaning I was more anxious um, nutrition was really hard for me. Uh, you know, I was in and out of like, I, I just, I couldn't sleep. All of those things have a net effect on your health. So they become a public health crisis, not just mental health crisis, but actually, you know, public health crisis. It's, I think a perfect way to kind of to close us out for at least today. It really speaks to how, as we start to show up, as we start to break the cycles and seek change in our own lives, which starts with our work and it starts with how we show up in the world and show up with those immediately around us and then into our community, we become paradigm shifters. Our communities really start to make change. And I can't agree with you more that this is a part of the COVID, the pandemic, the murder of George Floyd, our response to injustice and inequity where I was raised in a time of silence. I was raised in a time when when people said this isn't our business and we're coming to learn this is our business. This is all of our business. It's all of our business. It's, <laughs> it's all the of only our business. business. We are, we are co- every day we are out here co-creating the world 
we deem, we deem acceptable to live in. So are we co-creating a world that we say it is acceptable to? We are every day that we don't do something or we do something, we are co-creating a world that we all will live in and that our children will live in and our grandchildren. And that is everything from the climate to what is happening politically, to what is happening socially and economically. It is top to bottom. And I, I, you know, that idea that we cannot be siloed and be a unified nation and people all with, you know, our hearts beating and pulsing as one <laughs> global being who's just trying to like move through this life on the planet for the short time that we're here. Simultaneously, you and I right now, right? it's a blip on the timeline, right? Let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah. But this is it. This is it. This, this is, is what it. we have. This, this is, is our what go we have. Yeah. And this is what we have to give and to bring and to share and to build. And it is on us. And to hear this from you, to hear this all come together in this powerful way, I'm hearing the most powerful, impassioned, loving, grace-filled call to action from you. And that is some, th this is a part of your power, just one facet of your power. And you still live full tilt. And the part of that power is though that you bring us in and you bring you to the world, you bring your experiences to the world. And I, I think you show that we can bring voice without vitriol. Absolutely. We can bring power without, um, I don't know how to put it, but it's just the way that you're able to, to kind of like help folks see we're all a part of this and it's incumbent yeah. on all of us to show up. Now let's do it. Let's start with our little steps at home. Let's start, let's start here, how we respond in every given, any sticky, difficult situation. And we build from there. And, and do, yeah. <laughs> we practice, practice that discomfort right in your own yes. home space. Practice it right here. Try it on. Yes. Try it on. It's beautiful. So, so I know, I know that you've got to go and we could talk probably for another few podcasts we'll do it again. and we'll I hope we'll get again. to do it again. And we Justin totally always ends with three questions. I'm just going to end with one because I feel like we've had such a, such a powerful, really beautiful end to this. Okay. I, I hope I'm ready. What post-it would you put on every parent's fridge today? If you could give the gift of a post-it note message, what would it be? Ooh! Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Just listen. Just listen. That is the post. It's the thing. Some yeah. Is, is yes. Just listen because there are times when I know I am certainly guilty of it. And if my beautiful child were here with me, she would absolutely affirm that sometimes you're talking and you're going and you're really moving at your point and what you need to get out there because you feel so much like I got to get this across to them. I just got to let them know this thing. When in fact, I learned and I continue to learn that in the act of listening, true, true listening, something bigger and more expansive than what I was thinking is probably right here in front of us. But together, if I'm listening, there's, there's unison and actually some, something better will, will emerge. So I would say often it's just listen. Just listen because it's so kids are finding their words. They're still, and I mean, literally they're finding their words. And I don't mean like, you know, we say that use your words when they're like three and four, use your words. <laughs> but you can still say that to like a 17 year old. It's like, really, what is that feeling? No, no, talk to me more about that. Use curiosity. And instead of, you know how as parents, we often walk into this very often how we're raised, right? Like by, oh, you feel this way. We, we try to give them words, right? You're feeling this way. And, and when they're little, there is a way of like describing emotions. I'm not, I'm not speaking of that, but it's more like I have experiences trying to um, ascribe things, put words in their mouth. Like I know what you mean, you know, and deploying curiosity to give them room to speak their truth. Absolutely. And by the way, their truth ain't my truth. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And like nothing more than being, you know, and I, I write this in the book with being the parent of a grieving child where she would be like, it's sort of like your experience is not my experience, mom. And she pretty much told me that at seven, she was hardcore. And she said, look, I mean, when I say hardcore, she was 
her authentic and most honest self when she said, you have not lost your father. Yes. Oh, I remember when you first told me this. Right? Mm. She said, so you don't know. Mm-hmm. She was seven. Mm. So right there. Like, I could have been like, well, I think, you know, you know. And no. She leveled it. She was like, she said, mm. let's get real clear. And so that taught me, oh, I need to zip it, observe, observe, and I need to listen because she's having a different lived experience than I have. And the best I can do is support her in her experience, not try to put onto her an experience that is comforting to me. Oh, that's it. That's the, that is the core truth of us. Not a, we're not able to sit in our discomfort. We want this to be more comfortable for us. We're triggered. We don't know why we're activated. We don't want them to be, we don't want all of the, all of the feelings. It's too uncomfortable. It's too difficult. So how can I make myself more comfortable? Exactly. Oh, it's powerful. So just listen, just listen. In fact, you know what? Listen, hold on. Okay. Audrey, this is crazy. You just said, what's on a post-it note? I did not know you were going to ask that question. Even though you sent the questions ahead of time, I didn't read them. So I didn't know you were <laughs> oh, going to answer that. Okay, good. But guess what? Guess what? Guess what? This is actually sitting on my desk because I'm doing it for you. So here, guess what I'm going to write on these posts? Are you going to write it? Note, right? Just listen. I'm going to go write, take, you know, doctor, take thy own medicine. <laughs> I'm going to write, just listen, and I'm going to put it on my fridge. Uh, will you take a picture and send it, yeah. send it to us, please, Absolutely. when you do it? Yeah. It, yeah. It's so powerful. I... What's coming to mind, and I know we've got to go, is that the mom in Never Have I Ever, my daughter and I flip for this show. It is her favorite show. The mom's leaning into this, isn't she? Elise, first of all, I love playing Elise. I love Elise with all my heart. She is literally, she's every mom. (laughs) She is every, she's like, you're like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to try really hard. Like she is that, you know, she is that part of so many parents. And sometimes Elise just needs to listen. And she, she knows she does. It's hard for her. Yeah. But she will try. She and will Elise really got try. it. When we ended last season, Elise got I it. Know. I know. I know. And I'm coming back for season three. So I don't know what's going to be up in their lives for season three, but I'm excited to find out. Cannot wait. And thank you for bringing so much joy and power and presence, light, your authenticity, all of the things you bring into our home without knowing it through our television, Mm -hmm. through the book, Mm -hmm. through our television again on Netflix Mm -hmm. is going to happen. You are, and I mean this in, in every like sense across cultures that I could, a true blessing in this world. You bless this world by bringing yourself authentically forward, by bringing your experiences, by bringing your truth, what you see, all of it. It's just an honor to be here in this, in this blip of a moment in time with you. And thank you for sharing your precious time with us. Let me tell you, I stand hard for you as, as the kids say these days. (laughs) Thank you for that. I'll I'll use that later. (laughs) Yeah, I do. I do. And so it is my honor and privilege and pleasure to be here. So let's do it again. I'd love to. Thank you again. Thank you. Have a beautiful and blessed day. Thank you, Audra. You too. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to the Family Thrive Podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, tell two friends and head on over to Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts and give us a review. We're so grateful you've chosen to join us on this Family Thrive journey.